Hey there, prom party. Today's episode discusses topics of rape, rape culture, and issues of consent, both in the context of the film Promising Young Woman, as well as the personal lives of both of your hosts. We understand that this content may be triggering to others, so if this is an episode you need to skip, do what you need to do to protect yourselves. For those that are willing to listen, we thank you, we are appreciative of you, and we hope that you enjoy this very difficult yet necessary episode. Thank you. Not quite as energetic as today because Oh yeah, no, this is a this is a sharp turn from It Takes Two. Yeah, last week was Olsen twins. This week it's about, you know, how fucking awful the world can be. Yeah. That's okay though. Um I'm actually really, really excited for this episode, and I hope uh those of you who are listening um are just as excited as we are. Yeah, there's a lot to uh unpack with this one and I, I guess it's probably worth mentioning that this movie really takes the format of our podcast and stresses it to its absolute breaking point. Absolutely. Like, in terms of the, not so much the content, but just, like, what constitutes a teen movie. And as far as I'm concerned, if we're going to end up one day doing, like, Romeo and Michelle, mm-hmm. and we've done, like, Just Friends, and, like, these are films about adults but deal with, like, experiences that affect teens or college age students then you know this is this is still in our wheelhouse well the reason that i justified this film as something that i i view as like a teen girl movie mm-hmm. so to speak um comes from a couple of directions one it comes from the way that this film is shot marketed and styled which mm-hmm. we'll dive into um and two this deals with an experience that happens when you're in college and how it can impact the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that frustrates me the most about the blatant dismissal of teen cinema, namely teen girl cinema, is that people act as if those years are not important. And I know that we make a lot of jokes on the show about, you know, like, oh, teenagers are being stupid or they're not communicating well because they're kids. And while those things can be true, it's also true that things that happen to you when you're a teenager or in your early 20s can be really impactful for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And pretending that they're not just as important or valuable is pretty disrespectful, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, something else that we talk about a lot on the show is that any time movies have to deal with sex, um, either the pursuit of it or um, sexual trauma, sexual issues, they tend to place those films in college or in adulthood because we are not at a place culturally where we are ready to address the fact that these sorts of situations are super common in the teen years. 
Um, so that's a big reason why we wanted to talk about this movie today, because it's dealing with issues that we see a lot touched on in teen cinema, but never really expounded upon. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a lot of um, real world parallels of this movie that exist for teenagers. The obvious Absolutely. one that comes to mind as someone from Ohio is, is Steubenville. Mm-hmm. Someone in the room with me has a, a fairly similar situation. I mean, we'll I'm sure that'll into. come up at some point oh, when I'm, I'm just filled with rage. I'm sure <laughs> it will. I'm just saying like, yes, there are very obvious you know, teen experiences, like that yeah. this happens to yeah. teens. This is not a I'm 25 and at med school exclusive thing. Yeah. So this is a this is a little bit of a stretch for us, but I think it's a very important one that has a lot of a lot of real things for us to be discussing within the context of our podcast. Hey, stretching is good for you. I'm very bad at it. I know. My hammies are eternally <laughs> They're tight. They're so tight. <laughs> it's because I have to bend my legs to fit into spaces all the time. That's true. Because I'm so long. You so. and Andre the Giant both. The world is not meant for your height. No, it's really bad. Yeah, it's okay, though. <laughs> yeah. So we are going to stick somewhat to our typical format, um, but obviously branch off a lot. This is one of those movies where there's predominantly a main character and then a lot of just tertiary characters that sort of hang out yeah um, there's there's like one real recurring side character yeah, and then everyone else is pretty much there for like a scene or two yeah everyone's there for a cup of coffee or so so we'll we'll get into that but starting off uh, with with our, our normal thing obviously this is not a movie that is old or that i had seen before but um i'm curious to to ask you harmony what was your reaction when you saw like the trailer or the poster or heard about this movie for the first time. Well, that would have been probably about a year ago now, wasn't it? Probably. This, this movie yeah. got put on the shelf for a long time. I was not aware of this until the trailer dropped mm-hmm. because about a year ago, it wasn't really until the pandemic that I spent a lot of time on Twitter or mm-hmm. social media in general. It was kind of just like, yeah, the internet's a place where I go to screw around and not really do very much outside of YouTube and I call it a day. Mm-hmm. But... Since the pandemic started, I've been on Twitter a lot more. I'm a lot more aware of uh, films. You're, you're more. <laughs> I'm, I've, I'm more aware and observant of the happenings. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know what's what's going on with the going ons. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that trailer dropped, and I went, "Oh fuck yeah! No, this <laughs> this is my shit. I'm full on for this." Very. And I just immediately sold on it, and then spent the next like eight months going, "Where the fuck is promising young woman?" <laughs> Yeah, this one uh, hit festivals, and because I work in film, a lot of my critic friends, I, I could tell like when they all saw the movie, because they would all text me, I just saw a movie that is the most your shit I've ever seen. Oh my god, you're gonna love it. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to our, our guest on our Jennifer's Body episode, Jordan Cruciola, who blew up my phone mm-hmm. about it. And I feel like we just name drop Jordan in every episode. She's a big, important part of my life. So, <laughs> so yeah, she she gets a lot of mention. Go listen to her podcast, Disaster Girls, or a simple podcast if you haven't. Um, or or Tyrion. Or Tyrion with Sam Wyman. Yeah, yeah, we hope to get Sam on here at some point. Yeah, at some point. Yeah. One of, one of these days. Yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah. But um, Jordan is very good at knowing what kind of subversive cinema I'm going to be into. And she was like, oh, yeah, no, this is... So up your alley, but the ending is, you know, that's the thing that's dividing everyone. So I'm really curious to hear your take on it because obviously Jordan knows my my past mm-hmm. and 
I'm always very appreciative when somebody tells me ahead of time, like, ooh, this part might not work for you, but hey, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that it's great because I, I get low-key a little annoyed when people are like, this is a movie for you. And I'm like, you don't know me. Yeah, people do that with me all the time. And it kind of drives me crazy because most of the time they don't know what movies I like or at least the specific nuances of the shit that I'm into mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm apparently a little difficult. Like, I seem, my tastes seem easy, but evidently people have a really hard time with that, I guess. I mean, I'm pretty good at it, but I also spend every waking moment with you, so if I'm not good at it by now, there's a problem. Yeah, okay, well, everyone else. Yeah. Everyone else goes like, hey, you'll like this thing, and I go, no, I hated it, actually. (laughs) I don't want to poop on your parade route, but Yeah. yeah, that was not for me at all. Yeah. But if anybody had said that about this movie to me, Mm -hmm. then yeah, they would have nailed it. Yeah. Because this is a lot of my my favorite things are just this movie. Yeah. I, I agree. This movie hits me right in a in a very sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm excited to dive in. But first, we, we got to hit up our friend Dango. Oh, God. And, uh, I'm scared of this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a little scared. And then I, I kind of skimmed it already. It seems okay. So our synopsis from Fandango. From visionary director Emerald Fennel comes a delicious new take on revenge. Everyone said Cassie, Carrie Mulligan, was a promising young woman until a mysterious event abruptly derailed her future. But nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalizingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now, an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs of the past in this thrilling and wildly entertaining story. So I don't, there's a few choice words that I don't know if I would. I don't like tantalizing. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like. in the context of this film. I don't know if entertaining is the right word. I think there was delicious or something in there. Yeah. Delicious I kind of like because I think it's very subversive. <laughs> Maybe, but there was, it just, it just reads weird in, in yeah. this specific movie, I guess. Yeah. No, I understand. Also I... that the whole thing sounds like a superhero backstory. A little bit, yeah, like, she's living a double life by night, which, I mean, true, but also, now she's not fucking Batman. Now her story will be addressed. <laughs> it's just like, okay, okay, cool. Yeah. So, let's first talk about, and by first, I mean prominently, because she's, she is the titular role, the promising young woman. She is everything. She is everything. Let's talk about Carrie Mulligan as Cassie. How do you feel about Cassie? The short answer is that I love her. <laughs> I love how ludicrously done she is with everyone. Yeah, it's kind of inspiring. Yes. Like, the fact that she just spits in Bo Burnham's coffee mm-hmm. and just gives everyone the salt, mm-hmm. including her parents, just, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. I I I respect a woman who can be mean, but for the right reason. I feel like Cassie is piss and vinegar and hand-spun cotton candy. Ew. But that's what she is. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Just when you put those all together, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want the taste of that. Well, yeah. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the point is I feel like you see the cotton candy and you're like, oh, I'm interested. And then you get the piss and vinegar and you're like, oh, God, no, I don't want this. You don't even like vinegar. I hate vinegar. And I think it's you're gross. probably neutral on piss. I've never tried it, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> but thank you. I didn't you. say you had to try it. I was just saying the concept of piss. Uh, uh, 
whatever. Okay. I don't care. It doesn't like it doesn't I'm not gonna be like, uh piss. I mean, if it was like someone else's piss, maybe, but like if I pee on my leg, I'm like, I'm not gonna wash that. That's annoying. It's, it's that's why you're neutral. That's why I'm neutral. It's I don't fucking care. Just, yeah, but whatever. No, your analysis of her is very correct. And I have to say that one of the things that is most appealing about this movie for me is the styling of it. Oh, totally. It's an extremely stylized film. I love all of the visual choices they take. Mm-hmm. The Be- cinematography in this m- movie is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I really, really love about this movie and Cassie as a character is that usually when you see a, uh, you know, a strong female type character as it were, mm-hmm. they aren't allowed to be hyper-feminine like this. Oh, no. There, there's usually some brand of androgyny or masculinity attached to them. Even in movies that I love, like Revenge, um, where she's got, you know, the big giant, uh, like, pink earrings, mm-hmm. the world around her is really gritty and masculine, mm-hmm. whereas this is not. No, and that makes this world very, um, it makes it really believable in a weird way. Like, it's it's clearly got a lot of, like, fantasy coloring to it, but mm-hmm. usually when you see any kind of revenge flick... Or anything that handles subject matter like this, it's gritty and dark and like, oh, hey, this is the kind of thing that lurks in the back alley and that's kind of the vibe we're going for. And it's like, oh, no, we're going to pull all of those dark, ugly thoughts out of the shadows and we're just going to put them out in like the colorful light of day. Mm-hmm. That's that's what this movie is doing. Which... It's, it's normalizing it and making it very like fantasy Tim Burton suburban-y looking where it's like, yeah, this is this is the reality of what most of America's like. Yeah. I which I appreciate so much. And I'm glad that you brought up the idea, like, you know, we're talking about revenge films and and things of the like. So I really want to address something that has been kind of driving me a little up the wall since the movie was released, is that everyone keeps saying that this is a rape revenge film. In a very literal, not correct sense, and sure. It's, it's not. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a rape revenge film. Yes. This is a vengeance film. Yeah. Is and- this revenge <laughs> for a rape? Yes, but it's not a rape revenge film. Correct. And we, like, and that's what makes me so frustrated because we watch a movie like Straw Dogs and nobody really is like, that's a rape revenge film. They're like, oh, that's a vengeance film. And it's like, so is this. Mm-hmm. Just because it has to deal with two women who exist and have to deal with the same systemic you know misogyny and patriarchal issues and rape culture does not mean this is a rape revenge film it's not it is Mm -hmm. a vengeance film yes and when we sat down to watch it the first comparison i made to this movie that you know it it seems like it's a rape revenge film like they Mm -hmm. don't have nina as a concept in the trailer Mm -hmm. like you're not aware of her but when this movie starts to pick up steam and get on its way I sit there and go, oh, this is just Lady Snowblood. Right. It is, That's what this movie is. It's far closer to something like Lady Snowblood than it is to like Ms. 45. And to me, it just gets very frustrating as somebody who constantly has to defend the validity and the cathartic release that can be offered to some survivors. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm being very specific in my words here because I, as a survivor and as somebody who is trauma-informed, would never in a million years 
talk to another survivor and go, you know what you need to watch? I spit on your grave. Because mm-hmm. that sort of catharsis does not work for everyone. Mm-hmm. For those that it works for, that's great. I personally am one of those people. But it does not work for everybody. And I see that and I respect that. But what I wish more people could understand is that one, we all process trauma differently. Mm-hmm. And a movie like Promising Young Woman is impossible to watch without bringing your own baggage of that personal experience to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And the thing I keep seeing is all of these articles that are being written that are like, Promising Young Woman fails survivors. And it's like, hey, you don't get to say that. Mm-hmm. Even if you are a survivor, you can say, hey, this didn't work for me and my personal experiences and how I process my trauma, but don't fucking speak for all of us. Yeah, that's that's something I really struggled with when we were watching it the second time, because we watched mm-hmm. it went back when it first came out. and Yeah, we got to watch it um, the day before my top 10 of 2020 was due, and I didn't turn it in until then because i was like i know this movie's gonna make my list i just don't know where it's gonna fall Mm -hmm. yeah no i was the same i was like that was my front runner from the second i heard about i went yeah this is gonna be a this is gonna be a strong contender for my favorite Mm -hmm. film of the year like it's it's i don't know what's gonna beat it and i never did an official ranking but it's easy top three like guaranteed but when we were watching it now that it's available to rent for like you know 5.99 or whatever mm-hmm. it is which we rented it in 4K when we don't have a 4K TV <laughs> cuz it costs the same and i felt fancy i had a really difficult time watching this movie cuz i'm just sitting there and all i keep hearing in my head is all of these reviews of people who are complaining about this movie and i'm just sitting there going how how are you saying that are we're we're watching the same movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand the things you are saying. And as best as I can figure, the reason that people were having so much criticism of this film is, one, there's there's a lot of misogyny mm-hmm. centered around this, even from women. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a whole different thing we'll get into in a sec. But I've, there's just so much egotism. Yeah, because It's people... so much like centering yourself in this story mm-hmm. and thinking about it for you only as if like uh, any sort of like rape or assault or anything even in this realm is universal and it's not it's extremely different and here's the thing if people don't like this movie cool i don't expect everyone to who watches this to like this mm-hmm. i don't expect every survivor who watches this to feel good about it mm-hmm. because ultimately this is not a movie that's going to make you feel good It's just not. If you're looking for that cathartic release of a rape revenge film, you're not going to get it here. That's not what this movie is about. Mm -hmm. And the frustration that I get is when people talk in absolutes about this movie. Where they fail to recognize like, hey, this didn't work for me. But there's a lot of people out there that it really, really does work for, and that makes this movie important. Yes. And that's what frustrates me is that I've spent my my career, you know, defending movies like I Spit on Your Grave and being like, hey, these are really important movies because they do a lot of good for a lot of people. That doesn't mean they're going to work for everybody, but because they do work for some people, that means that there's value in this. And it just frustrates the shit out of me because there are so many articles where people are like well i'm a survivor and i hated it therefore it's bad for all survivors and i'm like 
that that's not your decision to make. Really bad criticism. That's, it's bad. That's you sh- bad you, you criticism. You should be better than this, but you're not thinking. You're, Correct. You're if not you thinking about be, anyone other than yourself. If you want to be mad about this movie, be bad about this movie. Talk about how it doesn't work for you. Do not speak on how it doesn't work for all or how it's bad for all because it's not up to you. Yeah, there's been, oh my God, as I rub my temples, there's been so much of this on Twitter for the last several days since the Oscar nominees were announced. And um, people on Twitter are really, really good at making me hate things that I like just mm-hmm. because I'm sick of discourse about them. Oh, yeah. The this, discourse this, is this got a, atrocious. This got a really intense, like, happiest season vibe about it. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, wow, I almost don't want to watch this movie because you all won't stop being shitty people towards each other about it. And this movie is fucking goddamn perfect and I love it. But it, it, that was my gut reaction because I was so frustrated with these people and their bad takes. And as far as, like, the the blowback of people who were really rallying against this movie goes, you know, what's really frustrating is that you have people sitting there going, yes, I love this movie. Carrie Mulligan's great. I think that it does a really great job doing a lot of stuff that like rape revenge films don't typically do because it's not one, you know, we're playing in a, in a different genre here altogether. Mm -hmm. You're now having a lot of people who are lashing out at those who are saying this works for me and I relate to this and I'm getting something out of this movie, and people are going, nah, but fuck you. Hey, you're uh, you're you're clearly like a vulnerable person, and you're like sharing that because you relate to this film. Well, fuck you. Your opinion's wrong, and it's like lashing out at them in like this really ugly way. Because it There's essentially so much is infighting, saying, and it's awful. Because what essentially is being said when you discount somebody's opinion on. You know how they feel about this movie is you're telling them that their response as a like as a survivor or their response as just somebody who has to deal with the culture we live in in general is incorrect Mm -hmm. and like that's the issue that's why we cannot speak on behalf of all people that's why we are not a monolith and we need to stop acting as if we are we need to understand that there are levels to this sort of shit yeah and and embrace embrace the differences that exist between all of our experiences because they're not universal. I think what I think one of the worst things that happened to sort of the the fight against rape culture is very similar to the issues that I have with the quest for, you know, marriage equality. Because when marriage equality happened, it was like, we're just like you. We're just like you. We just want to get married and have love. We're just like you. Mm-hmm. No, we're not as queer people. We're fucking not just like you. And mm-hmm. we should, like, the fact that we hitched our wagons to that is ridiculous. And the same thing, I think, happened when it came to, you know, the quest the, the quest for justice against rape culture and Me Too and all of these things where it became rape is rape. Rape is rape. Rape is rape. I'm sorry that I said that so many times, but when you've been bombarded with it that much, that's the conversation that happens. And here's the thing. No, there are levels to it. Mm-hmm. Some experiences are worse than others. Mm-hmm. They're all horrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be like, ah, you got off easy. Like, no, it's it's bad. It's bad no matter how you slice it. But the message has been so diluted because now people that are like, a man looked at me funny on the train are trying to act as if they're having the same lived experience as somebody who may have been like brutally assaulted. And it's, it's just this lack of 
nuance and respect I think that people have towards one another because ultimately unless somebody is outing out to you their story and what happened to them you do not know the extents of what they've gone through of what they've survived and because you don't know that you don't know what you are saying to them when you're like no your response to this movie is wrong yeah, uh, I mean, it seems like as good a time as any. I know we were just going to be like, let's talk about Cassie, but we were... Well, because Cassie is all of us, is really what it comes down to. Cassie is that feeling I think so many of us have inside of us that we don't have the ability to exercise. Yeah, well, we'll come back to her, I guess, but this is as good a time as any to, first of all, mention if you hear screaming children in the background. We, we have, have a lot of families in our neighborhood. We do, and this one child is just... So miserable. They're always screaming either in joy or in just absolute agony, and there's no in-between. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're outside. They're using their outside voice, I guess. Yeah, but... that's fine. Do what, you, do what you need to do. But... Yeah. But that aside, this... <laughs> like clockwork. Like clockwork. I'm sorry for laughing. I just broke that tension, but I'm gl- <laughs> I'm almost relieved that there's a child screaming throughout all of this because it makes the stakes a lot lower. I don't even know if people are going to be able to pick up on that. Like, who knows what our mics will gather, but yeah. sure, this seems like as good a time as any to at least bring up that, like, we bo- we both are uh, survivors of assault. Yes. And we come at two very, very different levels. And I've never really had... I've really never had a reason to publicly discuss mine, especially mm-hmm. because my circumstances were so different than most people's. Mm-hmm. And I all—I don't want to take space from stuff that seems more significant, I guess, or, or more intense, well, first more violent. First, you are entitled to, to take up space because you have endured assault. And I'm appreciative that you have an understanding that the circumstances are very different between the two of us. Mm -hmm. But I don't want you to feel like you are not entitled to take up space because you are. Oh, no, I know I can. I just prefer not to. Okay. There's... If it's your preference, then I'm not going to like push you and be like, no, but you are part of this. Please don't. Then that's, that sounds awful. That's terrible. Like, come join the Survivors of Rape Party. Like, that's not a party I want to give anyone an invitation to. Yeah, no. The, I mean, the quick version of it is that when I was 16, I was coerced by a woman who was twice my age and from a, a state over who was married and her husband was in jail. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she was not very nice. <laughs> she sucked. And uh, yeah, that fucked me up really bad for a good four or five years where I didn't have sex. I didn't date. I didn't do anything. Because when I came forward to it as like, you know, I was a 16-year-old boy. And I was just like trying to basically say like, hey, this thing happened. And I'm trying to open up to like my friends or people around me. Mm-hmm. And it's just like... Or, and the response I got was, oh, my God, like, you got with, like, a 33-year-old married woman? Is she hot? You're my hero. And it's like, okay, well, uh, that shouldn't be the takeaway of this. Mm-hmm. But my situation was not – it was not violent. It was not uh, – I, I, I'm not not to prioritize thing, but I would say that, like, as far as, like, the trauma I experienced from it goes, it was – mostly emotional and the bigger issue i had with it was that no one was responding the correct way to it 
Which I think is very emblematic of how we dismiss because obviously at the time you were presenting male for all intents and purposes you were a teenage boy and we see this happen a lot when there's issues of grooming with like teachers and their students mm-hmm. where you know you talk to the kids and they're like oh yeah you the did teacher it. hot roll oh, those great looking like we were watching reno 911 the other day and there was a, a a joke about that where carmen electra was the teacher mm-hmm. and the the thing they couldn't get over was that the the student was like this nerd, and they're like, "You get with that nerd kid," and like, you're not, a huge dick. Yeah, not the fact that like you're a teacher who assaulted your students. I mean, that's the joke with Reno nine one one, but well, yeah, they're bad cops. Yeah, <laughs> like, like police are bad people. Like that's the whole joke of the show. Yeah, yeah, but um, you know, that's just I think it's very commonplace that we're taught to cheer and applaud any. Oh, sexual. It's my sexual male conquest. Yeah. I, I bedded a woman who was twice my age and out of my league and bleh. Yeah, but like you were still groomed and like that's yeah. fucked up. Yeah. This woman talked to me on Quizilla of all places. I'm sorry, but every time you say that I laugh because I'm like, Quizilla, there's probably people... There's probably people listening to this podcast. They're like, what is Quizilla? The same way people are like, what's an eight track? <laughs> like, think, it just you, sounds ancient at this point. God, I'm sure Quizilla's probably died at least it a decade ago. There's dead. no way it's still around. No. And I don't care enough to look. It's probably starving alongside all of our poor Neopets that are just covered in ads now because that site can't stay alive for much I, longer. I never use Neopets. Y- I know. Y'all are neglectful Neopet parents. I'm a bad Neopet parent. I'm so sorry. Sue Spiria, my Corbett. I know you're starving. Oh, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, not to make jokes, obviously, but this is my situation, and this is one way I'm coping. Yeah, but levity is important. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do. And honestly, I think this movie does a pretty good job of balancing levity, all things considered. I think so, too. I think there's a, a very nice balance of humor in here, even if some of the humor is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, like, one of the instances I think about is when Cassie visits the dean from the university who, you know, neglected to, to pursue the the rapist of her friend. And she's kind of taunting her about, you know, oh, yeah, I dropped your daughter off over at that same house. How do you feel about it? And you watch her freak out. But then it's just the response that Cassie has after, like, do you really think I would do that? Like, come on. Like, I'm not a monster. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that to you. And that moment is such a fun, like, exhale. And then before she leaves, she sticks gum under the desk. Right. Like, it's such a good move. It's like, I'm not only going to scare the shit out of you. Now I'm going to be a shitty student. I'm just going to put my gum underneath your desk. Yeah. fancy ass, probably carved from expensive wood desk. It's perfect. And that's like a character trait I really like about Cassie is that frequently when she is uh, kind of having showdowns with people, she is chewing gum mm-hmm. because it's it's kind of like smoking where or having like a toothpick in your mouth where there's mm-hmm. this element of one, there's an oral fixation to it, which is like some good subtext for this movie to use. But also, uh, as I learned from Tommy Lee Jones in the cinematic <laughs> treasure Man of the House, one thing you can do to completely eradicate people being able to read your face properly is chew gum. Mm-hmm. And there's also like she chews on the side of her mouth, so it's got this like disrespectful like 
like you're a worm i'm gonna spit on you like fuck you you're nothing kind of vibe which is also such a great character choice as well because i think about the cultural rules that are set between like women and gum chewing like even in willy wonka like somebody who makes candy for a living has violet beauregard and tells her that it's like a like a nasty habit i think for this girl to be chewing gum all the time i mean i think it's nasty that she like sticks it behind her ear and stuff well yeah that's disgusting (laughs) but more so the issue they have with her is like oh this girl's chewing gum that's gross like girls chewing gum is such like this culturally disrespectful thing whether it's you know the receptionist who's loudly chewing or the people who smack their gum or make like big bubbles it is such a defiant trait for a woman to be like i'm gonna chew gum in your fucking face you can't smile properly if you have gum in your mouth yeah it's it's you should smile more and i mean we also see her with like the she plays with a straw in her mouth she has the uh the twizzler there's a lot of stuff going on with her mouth which is such an anxious tactic Mm -hmm. um obviously this is an audio format so you all wouldn't know but uh i tend to have like a plastic toothpick in my mouth yes at any given time and they end up everywhere yeah they do i'm really bad i'm so sorry (laughs) crazy i know i'm sorry but uh it that's one of my nervous tics and it calms me down is to have something that i can chew on and Mm -hmm gum you know rots my teeth after a while so i had to move on to something that wasn't so filled with sugar and things Mm -hmm. but i also think a lot of the the balance in this movie just comes from a lot of the a, a, a lot of this movie subverting your expectations i mean after she has her first you know run in with fucking adam brody um she leaves and we see her doing a quote unquote walk of shame or stride of pride, mm-hmm. depending on how you view it. Yes. And she's got red dripping down her leg, down her arm. And because it's panning from her feet, you're like, oh my God, she just killed that guy. Mm-hmm. And then the reveal is that she's eating, I don't know if it's a jelly donut or a burger. I think whatever. it's a burger. Everyone think, keeps saying it's a donut. I think it's a donut because it's in the morning. But it doesn't yeah, but matter. It's in like wrapped paper, like a like a breakfast burger or something. Yeah. You that's how they give us them at Brunut's. They wrap them up. No, they give you two in like a basket. Be- if you sit there to eat it, if you take it to go, they wrap it up. I have never gotten a to-go donut at Brunut's. Why would somebody give you a donut unwrapped to go? They're just going to palm some sugar when they hand it to you? Maybe. I don't know. No, that's, that's not... No, that's nasty. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Regardless, she... You know, it's food that's on her arm. It's not blood. It's food. Mm-hmm. And... From that moment, it's like, yeah, this movie's going to fuck with you a lot. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant. I, I think we're probably just going to end up going through the beats of this movie chronologically. I mean, that's Because I think that's, like, that's going to forego our normal format because that's just it's, the way this yeah. movie should probably be digested. Yeah. But can I just say that, like, I love that scene in particular because that's my fucking move. Oh, you, when the uh, construction workers are staring at her and she just stops and stares back? Mm-hmm. Just motionlessly. Yeah. And then they get mad, and they're just like they're they're doing this whole like oh you burger with that shake like hey baby how much like they're just being real shitty, and then they have like end up leaving with like fuck you bitch, and she's mm-hmm. doing nothing, mm-hmm. and oh my god that's so my move, and you get mad at me for it. I only get mad at you because you don't break. So sometimes one it's a delay, and I'm like oh my god like just please we have somewhere to be or whatever. People stare; they um, need to be stared back. 
My personal favorite, though, is the time that we were leaving the wine shop and the person was staring at you and when we walked by. Oh, and the you, fact that I pivot? You pivoted and oh. turned around to stare and the guy was definitely pointing at you and then like pointed in an opposite direction to try to act like, like look at that thing. Looking at something else and we're like, bruh, like you got caught not only staring, but also pointing and staring, you fucking goon yeah people stare and point at me all the time and uh that's where that's where my pivot has kind of come from Mm -hmm. is uh yeah people don't like getting caught doing stuff like that especially because i'm a giant and at least kind of like an an intimidating figure if nothing else but uh yeah when people pass me on the street i'll frequently like turn around and you know if they don't turn then they won't know that i'm looking back at them but i will Mm -hmm. straight up walk backwards and continue to walk backwards because i will catch them staring at me Mm -hmm. and i i'm all about just being like no 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 i'm going to stare back at you and, like, you're going to look away awkwardly, and then you're going to come back because you think that I've turned away, but mm-hmm. I haven't, and I haven't broke. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make you so uncomfortable. I will <laughs> I will destroy you by doing nothing. And that's yeah. – that's um mm, that, that starts with It's Raining Men as a cover, and it oh, leads yeah. to this. And it's like, yeah, I'm on board with this movie because I'm here. I'm, I, my tactics are being used, and I feel – super, super reinforced in my choices to just destroy men by doing nothing to them. I also love the fact that, yeah, they do have the response of like, well, fuck you then. Because that is, I think, every experience a woman has ever had rejecting a man. Oh, yeah. The amount of times that I have been told, oh, baby, you're so beautiful. Oh, baby, oh, baby, let me take you home. Let me buy you a drink. Can I get your digits? Da, 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 da. And then the second I'm like, I'm gay or I'm married or I'm whatever. It's like, whatever, then you fat bitch. I don't like you anyway. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you were literally just trying to get me to suck your dick. And now I'm a fat bitch. Okay. I mean, my favorite ones back when I used to be on dating sites is I would have guys message me being like, oh, like, you're so beautiful. Like, you're so sexy. And I, you know, I'd be doing something else. I wouldn't check my messages. And like 10 minutes later, they go, oh, you got a dick. Never mind. You're ugly. And I was like, really? Because you said I was beautiful not too long ago. And they go, (laughs) Oh, well, I didn't know you were a man. And I was like, oh, you think men are handsome? Like, that's nice. I, I mean, it's cool if you're if you're into dudes. I'm not one. But it's like, you know, if you, as long as you're being honest with yourself, that's all right. And yeah. they would just get very angry. It was it was wonderful. It's so dumb. Like, it's so the most happy. fragile thing. And it's also absolutely – we've talked about it on a couple episodes. But it's the being afraid to read in front of the class response. Mm-hmm. Like instead of being like, oh, okay, thanks, have a good day. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to be rejected, so I never wanted you in the first place, and you're I'm, gross. You can't fire me. I quit. One hundred percent. That's what's going just, on. I'm embarrassed. And we see that uh, a little bit later when Cassie goes home with uh, or attempts to go home with the guy in the fedora who yeah. didn't recognize her from when she took home Adam Brody, and he uh, was there. I. Oh God, I love that so much that that detail of that guy coming back into the movie where he does not recognize that like oh that's you know that psycho bitch that like jerry or whatever took home the other night and it's Mm -hmm. like uh you did not like women are such like a faceless like object for you to put your dick in that you don't even recognize people Mm -hmm. now granted i'll maybe i'll give him the benefit of the doubt that she was styled very differently between those two nights but even still dude yeah after this happened to your friend just the other day, you'd think you'd be a little um, a little more cautious, perhaps. But, but not only that, but like, I'm sorry, you don't see Carrie Mulligan and forget her. Because yeah. she's perfect. Also true. 
Um, but I love that as a detail of like, yeah, you are being so irresponsible and so stupid. And it's just proving that like, yeah, men have no fear. Yeah. And it's what's also great about that is, you know, when, you know, he does get caught and realizes that she's sober. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> first, he gets angry mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, whatever. You're not even that fine anyway. Just like being an asshole. And when mm-hmm. she puts him in his place and is like, you were totally cool to take me home when you thought I was, you know, blackout drunk. You're a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And you need to be careful because, you know, I'm not the only one who does this. I know a girl who carries like scissors or whatever. And then he runs away, like, crying. He's like, you guys ruined everything. And it's like, oh, my God, you fragile little bitch. Just don't take advantage of people when they're fucked up. Don't be a creep. Yeah. Like, you would have no issue right now if you were not being a creep. That's really just the moral of this whole movie. Don't be a fucking creep. 1,000% don't be a creep. (laughs) But, yeah, like, can we just talk about the men in this movie for a second as, like, a broad blanket statement? Uh, Emerald Fennel is a genius for casting all of these men who everyone knows from either comedy or some form of, you know, feel-good sitcom or whatever. These are actors that you see and you go, oh, I love them. Or you know, like, funny things they've done that are very gifable. You feel very comfortable with oh, a yeah. lot of when these you're, characters. When you're watching the credits scroll in this movie, it's so much of like, oh, my God, I love them. Oh, my God, I love them. And it's just all of these people that I adore in other movies. And a ton of them are here. And none of them are doing what they normally do. No, none of them. With none the, of them. The exception being, I think... Bo Burnham, which for most of the for movie. most of the movie, which like okay, so we've been talking all around this movie. I guess spoiler warning, like we're gonna talk about what happens in this movie if you haven't seen it. Oh yeah, that's why we deliberately what? waited until you could rent it for like a reasonable, for a price, reasonable price instead yeah. of like the twenty dollar buy fee thing. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to be as you know make this as accessible as possible without waiting so long that this conversation feels stale. Yeah, we're ballers on a budget. And then it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Right. So, so it's know, also just... Good you know, timing there. It's very relevant. Yeah. But yeah, Bo Burnham, I think, is playing very much Bo Burnham type, like a Bo Burnham type role for most of the movie, which is why when he turns out to be a piece of shit, you're just like, no. See, that's the thing here is uh, the the Allens, our, our lovely family over at Why Did We Ever Meet podcast, mm-hmm. all watched this movie Loved it. I don't think Roxy did. This is not. She's a a little too young for this. Though this would totally be her shit in like three years, because she'll be the most wild ten year old. Oh yeah, she'll burn (laughs) down a fucking building. It'll be amazing. But uh, yes, so Cash, who you might know from doing the music for our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes, love Cash to pieces. Join the Patreon to hear more. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Cash was just absolutely devastated by sitting there going. He's going to be a piece of shit. I don't want him to be. I'm, I'm so upset that he's going to be a piece of shit. I don't trust him in this movie. <laughs> yeah. It, like kind of the one that got me the most is that. Bash. Oh, I was so hurt. So Al Monroe, who is essentially like the big bad in this movie. We, mm-hmm. I promise you we will get there. Um, is played, played by Chris Lowell, who most people know as Bash on Glow. And he's in a bunch of other stuff. But mm-hmm. I am so endeared by his character on Glow. And you hear about Al Monroe for most of the movie, where it's like, Alexander, what a great doctor. Al's back in town. He's getting married. Al also happens to be Nina's rapist. Mm -hmm. And you don't see what he looks like. And then, you know, you show up at his bachelor party, and they're like, oh, I guess you're the groom. And I was like, no! 
like it just ripped my heart out and I stomped it on the ground because I love that actor and I love the roles he plays. And I'm like, God, I'm going to hate you so much in this. I know I am. And I did. But yeah. luckily, I'm good at compartmentalizing. So he's not ruined for me. Yeah. But but before we get, I guess, too much into this, I suppose that you know, everyone, I assume, has seen this movie. But the whole reason that we have the Al Monroe character as the big bad of this movie, the whole, the whole motivation for why Cassie does everything that she does, where she terrifies men at night, is that her best friend, her entire life, Nina... They were in med school together. Nina ended up getting assaulted by Al Monroe while a bunch of people watched and taped it. And Very stupid bill of them. Oh, God, yes. And Nina basically broke and took her own life. And that's the, the whole motivation for why Cassie does what she does. Mm-hmm. And I figured it was probably worth mentioning that just as like a plot point because we haven't yet and just in case but when it comes to the men of this movie the thing i love the most is that when you hear about al monroe he's like the big shot on campus he's real popular he's marrying like a supermodel or whatever Mm -hmm. and you have an idea of what he's going to be and you think he's going to be like, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, like a Chad type. Yeah. He's going to be like this jockey, like cool, the, 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 the. You think that he's going to be like Steph in Pretty in Pink. Yes. Like he's going to be that guy. He's going to be that. And then every dude in this movie basically is ducky. And they all think they're a nice guy. They're they, white collar duckies. Yeah. Yeah. Without the style. No yeah. One, without no that style. Ducky. They've all got too much khaki and. Too much tucked in shirts. That's 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 nice guy style. Bunch of shirt tuckers. Yeah. So you think that he's going to be like Steph or Blaine even, but he's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a good choice for every one of these men because you have an idea that like the football player or something is going to be, of course, he's going to be a rapist because that's what you expect because then they'll go on and be cops and be horrible fucking people or whatever in whatever profession they're going to end up having. Right. That's the very easy way to tell these sorts of stories. That's that's the shorthand for you filling in the blanks of what you think a rapist looks like. But it's like, no, any guy, even super nice, sings Paris Hilton, Bo Burnham could be this guy. Mm-hmm. Or at least, at the very least, enable this guy. Exactly. And I'm glad that you brought up Paris Hilton because we talked about that moment a lot last night upon rewatch. Where it's great. It's so great. And I always loved Stars Are Blind. It's like whoever wrote that song for Paris Hilton's like, hey, you know the tide is high? Well, we're going to write a better song <laughs> that is the tide is high. But it's this perfect moment because it's that perfect rom-com romance, but then it's also dealing with a song that, y- like, you have to like that song to know the lyrics. Because Stars Are Blind was obviously important in, in, in a big song, but it isn't Britney Spears' as Toxic, which, you know, gets the understated string arrangement. Mm-hmm. Like, we're at a point culturally where everybody at least knows what Toxic is. There are plenty of people who don't know what Stars Are Blind are. Oh, no, that didn't have staying power. No, it popped, it was huge, and then, like, it went away. Yeah, because it was Paris Hilton, so it's like, oh, we don't need to preserve this at all. Right. 
So that's what makes that moment even more special to me because a lot of, you know, the the two main songs in this movie, they're like, there are plenty of really good ones. Oh, don't so get many me good wrong. Neil the soundtrack on this is great. Yeah. But the two, I think, like signature pieces are The String Arrangement of Toxic by Britney Spears and then Stars Are Blind by Paris Hilton, which are both songs performed and sung by women who were treated like absolute garbage Mm -hmm. by the media, by the paparazzi, just by culture in general that just chewed them up and spit them out and didn't give a single fuck that they were hurting them. Mm -hmm. And the fact that those are like the two big beating hearts musically of this movie, I think is so fucking smart. Mm -hmm. So smart. Um, There was an interview that I read that I'm going to be paraphrasing because I don't remember where I saw it. I've read a lot of articles about Promising Young Women, and I know typically I bring things up uh, and read directly from articles. But what I would recommend people do, I'm again shouting out Jordan Cruciola, who has been keeping a Twitter thread at Jor Crew of pretty much every article that she has found about promising young woman from a variety of different perspectives and it's pretty incredible to see all of the conversations that are being had about this film so Mm -hmm. if you want to read like learn more hear more from other perspectives because again this is just our perspective we're not speaking on behalf of everybody we are not the universal truths of promising young woman these are just our interpretations and how they Mm -hmm. affect our personal experiences exactly which is good film analysis (laughs) but yes please please check those out but um Anyway, there was an interview with Emerald Fennel where she talks about, you know, what is a song that if a guy knew every word to, I would fall in love with him. And she said it was that one. And I'm like, yeah, like that's that's perfect Mm -hmm. because I feel like I would be the same way. Obviously not like a a dude, but (laughs) if... So this is what I needed to do. I didn't I didn't need to go ahead and serenade you with The Best by Tina Turner for our first anniversary. I needed to go ahead and do Stars Are Blind. (laughs) Honestly, the one that I think would have probably, like, Betty Davis eyes obviously would have been, like, the real kicker, but that one I feel, like, has really permeated through through culture. Mm-hmm. I don't know what my, what my Stars Are Blind song would be. I'd have to think about it, but... Mine would be some dumb punk bullshit that isn't probably. romantic. That's okay. <laughs> um, I want you to sing DVP by Pup to me. <laughs> that song about drinking too much a Hawaiian red fruit punch. <laughs> That'd be really cute, actually. <laughs> and i think that goes back to this movie having a very nice balance with its levity because there's a lot of dark and heavy stuff happening around her and ryan's relationship sort of blossoming Uh um i mean because once she meets ryan is when she finds out that al monroe's back in town and then that sort of sets her off her quest so another reason that this movie is not a rape revenge film but is a vengeance film Um, I'm actually going to quote myself because I have written about this. I I talk about how for almost the entire movie, Cassie's goal is to terrify a culture and attempt to dismantle a system that contributed to the demise of her best friend in whatever small way she can. She keeps a list of the random people that she's hopefully scared straight, adding them to the list only after the fact and never before. Her motivation is not to live out like Lady Snowblood, Arya Stark, or the bride from Kill Bill. Her list is not targeted or intentional. It's merely a documentation of those that she's encountered. It is only when the opportunity presents itself to come face-to-face with the people who specifically hurt Nina that her motivations change. From the moment that she hears the name Al Monroe, the name that skyrocketed to glory while her best friend's name was relegated as a footnote, no matter how hard Cassie tried to keep it alive, 
everything shifts. Her focus tunnels in on Al. Her previous generalized tactics we had seen time and time again suddenly flip to something specific to target Al and his friends. So this is a vengeance movie. This is mm-hmm. not a rape revenge film. Yes. And I, I, w- I want to come back to, to a thing that I was thinking about as far as okay. how this is like vengeance versus revenge. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it earlier, and I can't help but feel like you brought up Lady Snowblood because I just kept saying it over and over again when we were mm-hmm. watching it the first time. This movie follows so many of the same beats as Lady Snowblood does. Yes. It even has like the chapter style installments. It is about avenging the rape of someone else. In the Mm -hmm. case of Lady Snowblood, it was her mother who gave birth to her and died. And uh, I guess, spoiler at the end, there is uh, basically a murder. They both get killed at the end. Yes. Which I think it's up in the air about whether or not Lady Snowblood actually does because there's a sequel. Yeah. (laughs) But she definitely gets stabbed by the daughter of one of the dudes she killed in her vengeance quest. So if people are going to say... That Promising Young Woman is a rape revenge film by the very literal, not correct definition that she is getting revenge for a rape. Mm -hmm. That would mean that Lady Snowblood is also a rape revenge film, Mm -hmm. and it's not. Mm -hmm. The whole point of that character is that her mother wanted vengeance so bad for her husband and other child being killed by like bandits Mm -hmm. that she slept with a bunch of prison guards to try and have a kid that she could then birth with the sole goal of revenge Mm -hmm. and it's a martial arts classic it's amazing and i love it very much that is not a film that belongs in the same genre as like revenge or i spit on your grave Mm-hmm. or The Last House on the Left. That's That doesn't belong in that genre. It can belong in that discussion, but it's not. Right. Like, and this film, so many people are lumping it in, and it's so frustrating that we're now having people be elitist about rape revenge. They're like gatekeeping it, which yes. is such a fucking weird thing to so, do. It, it's so asinine that people are now having these holier-than-thou statements about, like, um, they've been making these movies for decades, and now a studio makes a big-budget version and suddenly five nominations at the Oscars. Like, um, there's better versions. And I don't understand... First of all, why the fuck do you care about the Oscars? Who gives a shit about the Oscars? All you do is people follow it to get mad about it. (laughs) Well, and the reason being, because the one that gets brought up a lot is MFA. And I like MFA a lot. I really do. MFA is a rape revenge story. So mm. it, when people are like, MFA is better and you should pay attention to that and it's this indie thing and it's great. Y- you can pay attention to both. Why must we pit strong women against Why each other? Why must we pit strong women against each other? Why must we pit strong women-directed films against each other? Why can there only be one definitive rape revenge film? Right, thank why, you. Why, why, why does there have to be only one? Why can there only be one story? Like, we can exist in the same world and we can be telling different stories. The fact of the matter is... This is unfortunately super fucking common. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're like, oh, well, w- that movie was already made and it was made seven years ago and da da da, no one paid attention. No one paid attention because it was an indie film and nobody knew about it. That's unfortunate. That's reality. We are completely deluded with content right now. Every addressing, movie's been made. 
What? Every movie has been made. Everything's derivative of yes, something. Yes, everything's derivative of the something. The hero's journey means that there's only actually like six different times of stories that can be told. <laughs> it's so fucking frustrating. Use your... I just got to take an inhale and an exhale. <laughs> I know the audio might be peaked for that. That'll I'm be I'm sorry. It's, it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. I'll make it not as loud for everyone listening. Yes. But and that's why I get that's why I get so frustrated by it because last night I watched it, you know, for the for the second time and I I really did love it just as much. Mm-hmm. This is a movie though that I have to be mildly distracted though when I watch it. The first time I watched it, I gave it my complete attention. And I'm very fortunate that I did not see this movie for the first time in a theater because I did have to stop. Oh, yeah. We had to take a pause. We took a pause the first time we watched it when Carrie Mulligan sees Alfred Molina. Mm -hmm. So Alfred Molina's character was Al Monroe's lawyer who bullied Nina to the point of getting her to drop the case that she had, you know, put up uh, to, to, you know, take him to court. Mm -hmm. And... He goes through this speech where he talks about how lawyers would get bonuses if you could settle out of court Mm -hmm. and how there are people that work at law offices whose entire jobs are to scrub social media histories of women accusing men of rape to find things to discredit them. Mm -hmm. And that shit's real. Mm -hmm. First first off, that's real. Um, Yeah, it's just classic victim blaming, but taken to like a legal stance. Yes. Um... But the thing that made me stop, and I guess this is where we're going to start getting into, I guess, my my more personal stuff. We're getting in the weeds. We're getting in the weeds here. Mm-hmm. Um, is that Alfred Molina falls to his knees and, like, grabs Cassie by, like, her hands and a little bit of her skirt and apologizes and says he'll never forgive himself for what he did. Um, it's shown that pretty much after Nina took her life that he had like a a psychotic break Mm -hmm. um, or a moment of clarity where it forced him to reckon with everything that he's done in his life and how he's pretty much helped a bunch of boys get off scot-free for harming women. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even beg for forgiveness he just says, I'll never be able to forgive myself and I can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And Cassie's the one who says, I forgive you, you know, go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have been critical of this because they're like, ah, yes, now this woman has to like give him the grace to tell him that like he's not a bad person, blah, blah, blah. I am a staunch believer in restorative justice. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe that people need to be allowed the space to make amends, to repair harm. Because if there is no option for redemption, then people will not try. Yeah, what's the point? Right. Like, everyone's dead to rights. Well, and that's the thing, is like, are there people who I believe are completely beyond repair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, fucking go launch R. Kelly and Gary Glitter into the sun. Yeah. We're done with them. That's fine. But the reason the scene really affected me the way that they did is because when I was about 24, 25, Mm -hmm. I was on a train platform in Chicago. And this is about a decade after um, my my experience. And I was on one side of the, the platform and my ex was on the other side. And 
I mean, I'll get more into it, I guess, later. But I, when I was 15 years old, I was, I was drugged and raped at a party by my ex. And then when uh, realized that I was pretty much like unconscious, like I'm, I was conscious enough that I knew what was going on around me, but I was unable to fight back like at all. I was just not there. It was basically like sleep paralysis kind of. Kind of. Like there's that movie Awake with Hayden Christensen where like they put him in anesthesia, but like he's fully aware of what's going on. It's kind of like that mm-hmm. is the best way I can describe it. Um, like I definitely would like swing my arms up and be like, no, stop. But like there was no fight in me. Like I, I was, I, I don't know what. I was given whatever. But once it was realized because his friends were there, like cheering him on and laughing and whatever. And once they figured out that I couldn't move and that I couldn't fight, then it became a group activity. And I'll leave that there. The rest of the details may come out later. Who knows? We'll, we'll see how I'm feeling. But anyway, my ex, who was essentially the ringleader of this whole ordeal, was standing on the other side of the train platform. And it was like something out of a fucking movie because like a train went by, the train he was clearly supposed to get on, and everyone got on the train except him and he just stood there and he stared at me and I stared back. And then he left and like part of me was like, maybe he's just leaving, leaving, then I knew, I was like, no, this motherfucker's coming over to talk to me. I, I know it. I know this is happening. So uh, he came over to talk to me. And I, I just, I looked at him dead in the eye. And before he could even say anything, I was like, hey, how have you been? And he fell to his knees and, like, grabbed my hand and, like, the hem of my coat and just started bawling. And, you know, I was a little annoyed because I was like, you're making a fucking scene. And then the other part of me was like, this kind of feels nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this kind of feels nice watching you fucking like grovel, grovel at my, yeah. feet. like literally at my feet right now. Um, but I like walked him over to like the little like seated platform thing. And I talked to him and as it turns out, he, like, hadn't met this woman. He fell in love with her. And before they, like, when they were dating, they weren't able to have sex because she was, like, impulsively flinching. And that's when she told him that she had been assaulted when she was in high school. It, like, caused all this, you know, problems for her. And they talked about it. And I guess hearing her talk about, like, how it was somebody she dated and how she didn't want to and she was too drunk and whatever, whatever, like, transported him, I guess, back to that place where he realized, oh, my God, I did this thing that was really fucking despicable. And what is both frustrating and also, like, weirdly funny to me is that that's what it took for him to know he did something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he genuinely didn't know. He was like, well, this is my girlfriend. And I'm allowed to do this. Because that's the fucking society we live in. We're dating, which means I'm entitled to do whatever I want with your body. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, like, it never crossed his mind that, like, hey, 
get my friends involved. This is all fun. It's, you know, it's just sex. It's not a big deal. It's whatever. And for whatever reason, like seeing Alfred Molina drop to his knees and do that just gutted me Mm -hmm. because I've been there. And the thing is like, I would never expect anyone to like forgive their rapist or Mm -hmm. whatever. Like that's, that's ridiculous. That's not for everybody. And again, there are some people who are beyond repair, but I talked to this dude forever and like, I could just, it's just, it's so fucked up that I was like, you genuinely didn't know that this is bad, that that Mm -hmm. was a bad thing to do to a person. Mm -hmm. Like you did not know. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I've told this story to a a couple people and I've written about it once. And in both instances, people tell me, how could he not know? How could he not know? That's, that's ridiculous. How could he not know? And I'm just like, y'all, marital rape wasn't even illegal for like until recently. Mm -hmm. Like people genuinely don't know because we don't, we don't talk about consent in sex ed we don't talk about consent like in general until very recently mm-hmm. like this was 2005 yeah 2004 yeah 2005 so like this is peak when people were like you're a slut if you exist mm-hmm. like and if the you're people a sl- who hated paris hilton yes and if you're a slut then like people can do whatever they want to you because mm-hmm. you're asking for it because you deserve it because all of these things mm-hmm. So it gets really frustrating to me where I'm like, look, I don't, I, I, I can't give that advice to people. I don't think that it's, you know, healthy for a lot of people, but I know for me, like it, I can't live with that kind of hate in my heart because mm-hmm. it would have, and you know, was destroying me mm-hmm. like all of the bad quote unquote, like bad kid things that I joke about on the podcast. Like, oh yeah, I used to like drink a lot and I did drugs and I did all these things and I was having a lot of risky sexual behavior and like. Haha, sophomore year BJ was like such a slut. All of those were because I had I was having a really bad time trying to navigate like my own traumas with this. So like whenever I see people talk about Cassie where they're like, why would you re- respond in this way? Why would you act like this? And it's like cuz we we all react differently. Some people shudder in completely and they never talk about it because it's too hard. Some people lash out and do a bunch of risky shit because they don't know what else to do with themselves. Like that's 100% what I did. Yeah. Like I mean, in my case, I did the opposite where I didn't do anything mm-hmm. because I didn't get the proper response that I felt like I should have from people and was like, "Oh, well, why should I ever talk about it then?" Yeah, and like and the thing is like Okay, yeah, we're we're just we're just gonna go there because we're already here. Mm-hmm. I have never like publicly talked about like vocally and put to words how bad that experience was. Do you, do you want me to come over onto the other couch? No, with it's you? fine. Okay, I just thought I'd. I appreciate that. it. <laughs> and the reason being is because I can go to any dinner table in America and sit down and say, "Hi, I'm BJ." I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor. And people go, oh my God, you're such an inspiration. You're so brave. Blah, 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 blah. All of these things. You're, you're incredible. But when I tell people, hi, I'm BJ and I'm a survivor of, I hate the phrasing for it because it, it, it sounds very 
like racially tinged, but like I'm a survivor of gang rape. People are like, I don't, that's too, that's too much. That's, it's inappropriate. I don't want to talk about that that's right icky. now. That's icky. It's icky. I don't want to talk about that. And like, it, it just sucks that it's like this one form of survival that feels like it's too much. And it's even too much in like, circles of survivors i've been told multiple times by other survivors that them knowing that my situation even existed is triggering for them so Mm -hmm. i feel like i can't talk about it Mm -hmm. like i've been saying for years that the reason that i don't have children is because i had cancer and my eggs are radioactive and whatever whatever and that's a lie that's not why I can't have kids. I haven't been able to have kids since I was 15 years old because my uterine line is so filled with scar tissue because the inside of my body knows what a hockey trophy feels like. And it's fucked up that we live in a world where I have to lie to people when they're like, well, why don't you have kids? Why, you know, what? You know, why is it such a struggle for you if you have, like, these weird baby fever? Why don't you just do I'm like, because I can't. Because a group of five people assaulted me while I was barely conscious, not only with their bodies, but with objects. Mm-hmm. Whatever was lying around. And the two most egregious were fucking still filled bottles of beer and a fucking hockey trophy who thinks it like what sick motherfucker thinks of that shit and they thought it was funny they thought it was fun i remember them laughing and just being like oh my god it fits oh my god and like in a fucked up way like the way that i joke about it is i'm like well i'm glad that he was a shitty hockey player because it was like a fourth place trophy and it was small I mean, at least there's the good story that, like, (laughs) so my dad inadvertently called my rapist a little bitch before before knowing that he did all that to me. And, I mean, I'll I'll tag on that in a second, too. But (laughs) I guess when my ex played, like, hockey with my godbrother, like, you know, years ago or whatever, he, like, missed a game-winning shot because he, he's also a few years older than me. Um, and he started crying. <laughs> so when my dad met him for the first time, he's like, I know you. You you missed that goal and cried. You're a little bitch, aren't you? And uh, Love you, Ron. I guess that's the <laughs> moment where I need to, like, go have my aha moment of, man, Larry Miller and 10 Things I Hate About You was right. I should have listened to my father. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus fuck. I have to make jokes because it makes it hurt less. No, I I, I completely understand. That's that's what I do too. It's, but it's, it's okay. It's just it's so fucked up. It's like what? And the thing is, like, there have been there are a handful of people that I've like talked about this personally. And whenever I give them like the laundry list of the shit that has happened to me between that and cancer and whatever, they're always just like your life doesn't sound real and i'm like yeah imagine living it i don't know how i'm not in a shoebox like i have no fucking clue how i can handle this and the thing is like i feel such like a weird sense of 
I don't know, solace or like, like a kindred spirit with Nina, who isn't even alive. Because in a, like a really fucked up way, when Cassie got that phone and saw that there was a video and there were people watching, I felt so calm. Because that is an experience that is unexplainable. Not only to to be raped, but for it to happen for an audience and for no one to care. For people to see something and do nothing is crazy to me. Absolutely fucking insane. And I, I really try not to use those words. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't have the vocabulary for it other than it's fucking crazy. And you know Cassie's parents obviously know what happened to her friend and you know why she had to drop out of med school to take care of her. Nina's mom played by just the brilliant Molly Shannon you know, she, she's moved on because she has to. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are very critical. They're so Molly critical Shannon's of it. And character. I want to like scream because yeah. it's like, uh, again, everyone processes grief differently. And for some people, they have to move on because lingering on it or being still that attached and invested is too hard. Mm-hmm. My parents know I was assaulted. They know it was bad but they don't know how bad it was. And it is a thing we do not talk about. And it's not for a matter of like, oh, this is inappropriate or, oh, this is, you know, just impolite or, you know, we have to push this under the rug. It's not like a courtesy. No, we don't talk about it because if my father let the reality sink in for more than I think half a second, it would break him and he would never recover. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about my mom. Mm-hmm. Like it's a thing they know, but it's a thing that it's like we, we've all gotten to different points in our lives after the fact. There have been a few times where I've gotten super upset and it has come out where I just, I'm too emotionally exhausted or something triggers me and I do and I do bring it up and it always is like a very emotional thing but for the most part we we have to keep it kind of in in the rear view when it comes to us as a family because my parents cannot handle it mm-hmm. and I don't blame them for that mm-hmm. I don't think that they're bad parents because they don't want to talk about the fact that I was fucking gang raped with objects mm-hmm. that's that's ridiculous. So when I see a character like Nina's mom, who's like, this isn't good for any of us. Like, you've, you've got to move on. Yeah, it's been seven years and she's mm-hmm. fallen to a, a rut where she's just routinely going out to pretty much just reopen her scars mm-hmm. for in, in the sake of vengeance. Mm-hmm. That's, and I mean, Molly Shannon's character doesn't know the specifics of that, but right. she can get the gist. But she does know that, you know, this... 
you know, 30 something year old woman is sitting on her doorstep drinking a juice box talking about a sweet 16 party. Mm -hmm. Someone who was clearly living in the past. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame her for being like, you've got to stop this because one, she knows it's not healthy for her Mm -hmm. and it's not. The ending proves that to us. Mm -hmm. But two, that's reopening her wounds. Like that's bringing her back to that place and making her remember what she's lost on like a very painful level. So I I get it. It's it's a different brand of grief and it's a different form of getting through it. And that doesn't make her a bad mom. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make the movie a bad movie for showing that. Not everybody does wallow in it. And I, I guess this is... Another thing that gets me like kind of heated about this Mm -hmm. is I don't believe in tragedy sparring. I think it's stupid and I think it's gross. I think that the one-upsmanship of, well, you broke your finger. Yeah, well, I broke my leg. Like, I think it's fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. Agreed. It, It does not achieve anything. But what people don't realize is that I know women who have been groped And now do not go to crowded places because it triggers them so severely. Yes. Who... I do too. Do not really have like male friends because it triggers them so severely. That's their way of responding to it. Mm -hmm. I was was fucking raped with a hockey trophy and I'm sitting here cracking jokes. Mm -hmm. We process things differently because on the scale of severity... I'm so I had it worse. Like I don't know how else to say Sh- it. Short of death, you're, short of death, uh, I had you're pretty it much in the one percent. And 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 I'm for whatever reason was given this combination of nature and nurture where I can talk about these things. And yeah, sometimes I cry a little, sometimes I get mad, but I can talk about them. That's not the same for everybody. So if we can recognize that like these grieving processes are not the same and the way that people deal with these situations are not the same. Why are we not allowing that space for our fucking movies? Why why is everyone so hungry for it to be just the same regurgitated response over and over again? This is different. And the fact that it's different feels so fucking invigorating to Mm me. Because the reality is, there is no catharsis in this movie at all. And that's my reality. When I watch rape revenge films... That's me. I'm fantasy booking. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to do that. You're I'm never going to kill someone with a boat propeller. No. It'd be fucking sweet, but I'm never so going to. Mm-hmm. But I'm the person who got a fucking phone call a, a couple years ago that one of the people who participated in my rape took their life and apparently apologized to me in their fucking suicide note. There's no catharsis in that. Mm -hmm. I don't feel good about that. I don't feel good that somebody was riddled with guilt for years and then took their life. Mm -hmm. Like that. (laughs) And again, I tell people that story all the time. They're like, that would feel great. You should celebrate that. And I'm like, I, I can't do that. That's just not who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. So when I watch this movie and I watch Cassie try to enact, vengeance for her friend who went through something similar that I did and she dies 
Because ultimately, we still live in a system where a fucking white man can fetishize Asian sex workers and murder them for it. And cops will say, this isn't racially motivated and he was having a bad day. And they justify the shit out of it. Like, the ending of this movie is so hard. And it's where so many people turn their backs on it. And I understand why. And that's the thing. I understand why it does not feel good. That's because life doesn't feel good sometimes. Uh And I'm mad at myself for crying for the second time on this podcast in like less than a month. (laughs) Put a second tally on the crying board. (laughs) Second tally on the crying board. Um, but okay, if we want to talk about the movie here, and do, do you need do you need me? No, to come keep going. You're oh, good. Okay. I'm just gonna like sniffle through it. And that's fine. But okay. like, keep going. I was just gonna see if you needed me. No. Okay. Cool. I will vocalize it if I do. But I appreciate you offering. Okay. Um, but let let's look at uh, good old good old Doctor Octopus here. <laughs> I fucking love Alfred Molina so much. Yes. So. This is a man who doesn't ask for forgiveness. This is a man who's clearly riddled with guilt. Uh-huh. 20 minutes later, Cassie has seen the video. Mm-hmm. And in the video, she hears Bo Burnham. <sighs> Fucking Ryan, how dare you? You, how you, you? you knew he was gonna. I knew he was going to. Like, and it, what's fucked up, too, is in this weird way, I was like, oh, a relief. He only just witnessed it. Like, Mm -hmm. because again, there's layers to things. Like, he's an enabler. He's equally a piece of shit. But, like, I'm already doing the mental gymnastics. Like, that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck is wrong with people? Because you don't want to hate him. Because he's he's ducky. Yes, and that's the thing. It's like when we did the Pretty in Pink episode, so many people were like, oh, I love Ducky, justice for Ducky. And I'm like, you are justifying so much bad behavior because you like him. And Like, my instinct was to do the same thing for Bo Burnham. And then, like, I just sit there and snap myself out of it. And I'm like, no, he's a piece of shit. There's a lot of bad people with a lot of charisma. There's a lot of people whose guts I hate. A lot of charisma. But they have a lot of charisma. Mm-hmm. And they're real good at sounding sounding smart or or being funny or whatever. Mm-hmm. Fucking. But. That's how they get you. Exactly. Fucking assholes. Anyway. They bamboozle you. But you compare. Dr. Octopus to Bo Burnham and you have Cassie coming forward to him and saying like, hey, um, I'm going to show this video to the police and everyone you know, and I'm going to ruin your life unless you just tell me the address of this bachelor party that I want to go to. And he's sitting there going, you can't do this to me. I didn't do anything. We were kids, which they weren't. They were like 25 years old. Yeah, you're not a fucking kid. You're in med school. You are not a child anymore. And that that's a thing that's repeated several times through here. It's like, oh, well, they they were kids. They're not. You're an adult. Mm-hmm. You you are you were very much an adult. That's why I love at the end. She when Al says it, and she's just like, oh, one more person says that, and I'm like, I feel you, girl. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he says, you have to forgive me, and she just goes, no, mm-hmm. because. He's done no work. None. He he just wants this to get swept under the rug because he didn't think he did anything wrong. And there's mm-hmm. different layers to not thinking you did anything wrong. But he just was like, oh, you you want you have to forgive me because I 
I value my feelings. You have to make me feel better. You have to forgive me because I don't want to be in trouble. And mm-hmm. I didn't actually do anything. And there's just all of these little things that are just racing through his brain. And he's not done the work to earn that forgiveness he's or at least even, even acknowledge- to entertain it. He's not even acknowledging that he did something wrong. Yes. And at the end of the movie, after Cassie goes missing, mm-hmm. the police show up at his office and he has a chance there where he could say, yep, here's where she went. Here's what probably happened. He, 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 could, he could give any information. Oh, yeah, he has the opportunity. But he skirts it all to mm-hmm. save himself and not own up to anything. Mm-hmm. And that is like... That little storytelling element of those two characters paralleling each other and what you basically should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And in the end, Alfred Molina is the, he's essentially the guy who enacts Cassie's plan in the event of her disappearance. He becomes an ally. Mm-hmm. Like, allies put in the work. They don't just say they're allies. And mm-hmm. this entire movie is a bunch of dudes saying they're nice guys, that they care about you, that they're whatever, and they fucking don't. Not just nice guys. Because there's the Dean, and then there's Alison Bree's character. Yes, internalized misogyny is a hell of a drug. Mm-hmm. It's it's everyone is a piece of this system. It's not gender exclusive. No. So he could have just as easily got those things and went, I was forgiven, and then moved on with his life, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. And... I know that a lot of people hate the ending of this movie. They think it sucks the wind out of it. They want her to triumph. I I want that too, but that's not this story, Mm-mm. and that's not what she wants. Sure, her note says, in the event of my disappearance, which is like, hey, I'm. this is a possibility. It's not a certainty, but it's a possibility that this might happen. This is her saying, I have a mission. This is what I'm setting out to do. And one way or the other, I'm going to do it. And the thing is, I subscribe to the belief that she knew she was going to die. Mm-hmm. She fucking knew. Yeah. She she phrased it as, in the event of my disappearance, she knew. Yeah. She took the, the license plate off her car and chucked it in the woods. Mm-hmm. She knew she was going to not come back from this. That's why she set up the time text messages. That's mm-hmm. why she set up everything. Mm-hmm. Because... She's been doing this long enough to know there's only one possible outcome, and this is how it's going to be. Yes, and there's this moment. Jennifer Coolidge's character, Cassie's mom, says she was getting better. You know, she 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 was getting better. She was she was moving on and she was healing because she had this moment where one of these bad people kind of restored her faith in in humanity, you know? Mm-hmm. Then she opens up more to Ryan, and she sort of starts to move on with her life. And then Ryan betrays her, essentially. Mm-hmm. He drops the ball for things he'd done in the past, and she goes, cool, well, there's no saving this. Burn it all down. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going out, and... We talked about this a little bit when we talked about the last episode you cried in, A Fault in Our Stars, (laughs) where Ansel Elgort's character has this moment that he wants to die for something. He wants to 
be remembered. He wants to have this hero's death, sort of. A, that that's that's what he wants. And there's a part in my life where I would have, I would have happily been in Cassie's situation, where it's like present me with a situation where there are awful people and I could take them down at the cost of my own life. Yeah, sign me up. Mm-hmm. Because stopping bad people from doing bad stuff to me at that stage in my life, like that's how I felt like I wanted to heal. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to get better. I didn't want to move on. I was just like, no, this is this is the end game. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have any aspirations. Here's I give me give me a reason. Mm-hmm. And that ending works for me mm-hmm. in that sense. It's the same way that like I'm I'm gonna make that comparison again. To Lady Snowblood, because mm-hmm. I love her as a character, she could have very easily not gotten stabbed at the end of her own movie. Like, she had, like, some some small child, basically, like, a teen girl who has probably no fighting experience come up and just, just run right into her and, and stab her. Mm-hmm. She is a trained assassin. She could have easily stopped it. But mm-hmm. she was like, no, I did what I set out to do, and now you're getting your revenge, and this is just the circle of life of stuff. Mm-hmm. And for Cassie, I feel like there's she's never been more at peace than going, yeah, this is me. I'm they didn't care about rape. They didn't care about my friend. But guess what? They're gonna care about all of this together. I don't think you're gonna get away with murder. And you know what? Maybe they will. Who knows? And I mean, yeah, we do live in America. Yes. There's a good chance that they might, because they're white dudes and they have money. I, I don't know. that That's how I interpret it. So one of the ways that I believe this movie is so strong, um, I'm going to read a page from our good friend Jordan Cruciola, um, who wrote for Brightwell Dark Room about this movie and the ending. Mm-hmm. And in in Jordan's words, then just as you feel the mighty catharsis of a rape revenge movie approaching, everything crashes down. As she's about to start carving Nina's name all over his body, Al manages to free himself enough to attack Cassie. He forces a pillow over her face and presses all of his weight down until she stops fighting back. She stops moving at all. Her body goes limp. Cassie is dead. And not, surprise, bitch, I thought you'd seen the last of me dead, as in actually and completely dead. Watching this sucked the air from my body. I felt sick and betrayed by Fennel. I couldn't imagine a way back after murdering the woman whose life I'd become so invested in and whose pain had already been so great. But the movie doesn't end there. Al convinces one of his buddies to help him dispose of Cassie. His wedding is later that day, and there's no reason for another life to be ruined just because he killed a woman at his bachelor party. So, with the body of his inconvenience burning in a clearing somewhere, we enter the setup for the ceremony, which Ryan is attending. During the reception, he receives a text from Cassie. You didn't think this was the end, did you? Police suddenly pour into the millennial chic outdoor wedding. Cassie left behind evidence of Nina's rape, as well as tips about her own likely death with with the lawyer who could see her mission through. He arrives with the cops. She timed the message for Ryan to send because Cassie knew what would happen, indeed what was likely to happen, when she went to confront Al. The men in the end were exactly what she expected them to be. Nothing more. As her killer is marched off in handcuffs, we cut to the pile of ashes where Cassie's body used to be. All that remains is half a heart necklace inscribed with the name Nina. Ryan receives the final series of texts. Enjoy the wedding. Love, Cassie and Nina. It took all the way until that very last second, but that's when Promising Young Woman won me back and became the other half of my own metaphorical heart necklace. 
I would have liked for Cassie to live and find hope and purpose. But in ending her story this way, Fennel cemented Nina as the most romantic of figures. The best friend was sealed in wax as the significant other. In the grand tradition of love stories across cinema and literature, Nina becomes the soulmate that Cassie would walk into oblivion for. Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer in this joining the canon of like the movies like Jennifer's body. And I think Jordan also mentions like thoroughbreds and tragedy girls Mm -hmm. where the great love of your life is your best friend. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately we always associate loves of your life with the person that you marry. Yeah. Your significant, your significant other. Yeah. And in this story, the love of Cassie's life is her best friend. Mm -hmm. And like all of the great love stories dawning back to Shakespearean ages, she dies for her. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very poetic. And I think that it's very gripping because telling stories like that make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And every aspect of this movie is uncomfortable. So I think it's a really kind of brilliant choice i think so too because people uh, at least like your your mass movie consuming audiences want easy stories if promising young woman had ended with her killing al or even scarring al and leaving him and walking off into the sunset i think i would have liked it i would have been like okay cool but i think my brain would have gone yeah, but I've seen this movie. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I know this story. I've yeah. seen this many, many times. Her carving Nina's name in Al's body, it's like, cool, that's like a footnote in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. That happened 10 years ago, and it's not even the climax of the movie. Yeah, that's, you know, carving the Nazi symbol into Christoph Waltz's forehead in Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, you're scarred forever, and this is a, a bad thing that you've done. But ultimately, like, it feels very hollow to me. Yes. Would Al have learned anything or would he have wanted revenge now? Basically, he would have been bitter. Yeah, that. Yes. It would have been that. He would not have learned anything. And the other reason that I think, you know, for sure that Cassie knew she was, you know, walking into oblivion for Nina is her half of the best friend necklace with her name on it. She leaves for Gale at the coffee shop mm-hmm. for Liver and Cox. Mm-hmm. She knows she's going to die. Yes. Like, she knows. So she leaves her, you know, half of friendship to, you know, one person who really cared about her, too. Mm-hmm. The only person in this movie who got her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to – I think we've covered plenty, and we could keep going at this forever. But Forever I, and ever. This movie is endlessly – not not a second of this movie yeah. is wasted. <laughs> no. It's- like, I could talk about every second of this movie because it is mm-hmm. done so perfectly. Even if, even if you don't like what it does, this movie is done perfectly. But I really want to ask you basically about the, uh, the trajectory of how you felt in the ending of this movie because we heard Jordan's feelings, mm-hmm. and I definitely have mine that I'll share. Mm-hmm. But I want to hear how this movie has this moment where you're just about to go over like the hill of a roller coaster and then Cassie dies and the roller coaster breaks and you go straight into the ground. My initial response was anger Mm -hmm. 
because ultimately, yeah, everything inside me, like I want her to succeed. I want her to enact this vengeance. I want her to to win, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning happens where, you know, his his buddy Joe comes in and is just a drunk idiot who's like, oh, you slept with the stripper. Hey. Uh, yeah. Everything about Joe's character and how he's written in his dialogue is like, oh, this is a goofy friend from like the Hangover movies. Yeah. The he... shift of this movie is now like, oh, this is told from like a male's perspective. And it's basically a comedy. Look at these shenanigans we got ourselves into after one drunken bachelor party. Yeah. That's precisely what's happening. And it's played by Max Greenfield, who most people know from like, Veronica Mars and and Ugly Betty and you know New Girl and but again like another example of an actor who's cast because you're like oh I love him I feel safe with him because I every time I look at his face I just go youths because that's that's who he is in my world I don't know who this man is I know you don't it's okay <laughs> I don't um, watch that much TV <laughs> but to see him yeah be playing around you, you like your read on it being like a Hangover movie is completely right because that in that moment that's what that movie has become. Mm-hmm. And then when reality sits in of like, oh no, he really fucking killed her. And his instinct is to coddle him and tell him that he didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And Al starts crying and he's like, my wife's going to kill me. I'm. What if I lose my job? At no moment do they mention Nina or Cassie. Mm-hmm. at all they mm-hmm. don't even not like they're having this conversation with a dead body next to them yes this is and this is what they say in the movie where it's like oh do you know that being called a rapist is like every guy's worst nightmare yeah that's one of the things that which isn't know. like hey we're not considering women we're thinking about ourselves yes and that's you know one of the last things that he says to cassie before you know he ends up killing her yeah and almost uh, he also says this is your fault um which <sighs> kills me yeah um but it's that moment of the two of them talking and watching them console each other where a sense of comfort, that's when the sense of comfort kicked in where I was like, of course this is how this ended. Mm-hmm. Because this movie is, this movie set in reality. Mm-hmm. This isn't a rape revenge movie. This isn't, you know, a, a fantasy. This, this is how it really works. Mm-hmm. This is what really happens. This movie is saying the things that we are all too chicken shit to admit Mm -hmm. this is not escapism this is real and yeah it reality sucks like having to accept that that's reality fucking sucks Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean it's wrong yeah and that's when i had the that's when i had the realization like i love this movie i love what it's saying Because it is saying what none of these movies have ever said before. And it does so in a way that doesn't feel like tragedy porn. I don't walk away from that movie feeling like, oh, I feel so bad for her. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Like, oh, the system is so broken. I can't believe she died. I walked away from it. And I'm like, it's fucking life. Mm -hmm. This is goddamn. Mm -hmm. There it is. Said the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. And you dressed it up in a nice, femme, colorful bow. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I respect this movie. Mm-hmm. Even if it makes me uncomfortable. Even if it makes me cry. Mm-hmm. I respect the hell out of this movie because this movie speaks the words that I want to talk about with my own life that 
I'm too chicken shit to talk about. Mm-hmm. I understand. Like, I have something I can point to now. Instead of having to, like, tiptoe around shit, I can be like, you seem promising young woman? You know what happened to Nina? Same, but worse. So there you go. Now you, you have a barometer now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's great. And I can stop comparing it to fucking SVU all the time. Yeah, I the ending is exactly what it needed to be. Because Cassie is completing a, a, a great love story and dying. And it's also proving a point of the world we live in. Yeah. And forcing people to look at it. One of the reasons that I love I Spit on Your Grave so much is because it's one of the only examples, and people have called it exploitation, and that's fine. I get it. That movie does not pull any punches when in, in terms of what it's presenting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pan away to the birds. It doesn't allow you some relief where you don't have to look at how horrific this experience is. Mm-hmm. It says, no, no, no. She doesn't get to look away, and neither do you. And that's one of the reasons I love that movie so much, is because I think people have this, like, abstract idea of what, like, rape and assault is like, unless it's happened to them. And I spit in your grave is like, oh, no, no, it's, it's that bad. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's as bad as you think it is, and here it is. And I respect that. And I respect that promising young woman goes, oh, you thought, you thought that she was going to, like, get away with this and, like, take these boys down and, like... You think you thought you thought that's how this was gonna you thought go? Thought that Fandango synopsis that makes it sound like a superhero movie was actually gonna be <laughs> yes, fulfilling? and it's like nah, like yeah, they're gonna get arrested. Who knows what's gonna happen after the fact? But like, shit's gonna suck because that's where we are right now, and shit sucks. Films, you know, I, we talk about these time capsule movies, right? When when people look at feminist theory in a hundred years from now. And they look at 2020 and, you know, the post Me Too movement. I hope they watch Promising Young Woman and they go, God damn, people still couldn't get their shit together, could they? Yep, that's like, the one you can point nope. to. Yep. Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought up I Spit on Your Grave at this particular moment mm-hmm. because uh, I know that that is one of your favorite movies. It is. And it means the absolute world to you. Mm-hmm. And you showed it to me within the last year. I did. Because I had not ever seen it, but I'd, I'd heard I'd heard everything about it, and I would consider it one of my favorite horror movies of the 70s. I think it is fantastic, and it feels good. Like, it's real ugly for, like, 30 minutes with no break, but it feels good at the end. Mm -hmm. This movie, that moment where Cassie stops moving drops me lower than I think any movie has ever has ever dropped me emotionally. Oh. Not yeah. not like, oh, this is like a miserable, long sense of dread. It's like, no, you're riding high and then you are just dropped out of the sky. Mm-hmm. It's like getting shot in the gut with a cannonball. Yeah, it's it's like that one guy who used to get it's shot that with one cannons. Guy. That that bald guy. <laughs> Who's on the Van Halen cover. Yes, that's ugh, the worst Van Halen album with <laughs> Gary Sharon. But I can't really describe it, but man, it's almost it's almost like rising from a phoenix when you see that like her plan all comes together mm-hmm. and this was all premeditated because there is this feeling of like hey, she was killed by these bad people. 
but she still had power and still was in control to the very end. Mm-hmm. And even if it's like not the ending that I thought I wanted, it's the ending I'm way happier that I got. Yeah, that's that's very much how I feel about it too, for sure. Yeah. <sighs> so this was like a fun therapy hour and 40 minutes or whatever. I just saved a lot of money. Yeah. Because <laughs> therapy is expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and only like two of my, you know, sessions that I have a month are covered by my insurance. The rest comes out of pocket. And that shit is it's pricey. It is. <laughs> <sighs> well, Harmony. I don't want to ask you the question this week because it feels weird. Yeah, also all, all I've done this entire time is just heap praise on this movie. Yeah. So I'm not gonna ask the question this week. That's I think okay. that's weird. I mean I don't know if I've had a movie make me feel like personal things mm-hmm. as much as this movie does where it's like this is not one-to-one with my situation but there's a lot of very specific nuances mm-hmm. that i've not seen in other movies mm-hmm. that i can relate to with this film yeah i agree i do want to take a quick moment to acknowledge for anyone who has made it this far that i really want to say thank you for allowing us this space to have these sorts of conversations Mm -hmm. and not only to allow us this space but also be willing to participate and and to listen it really means a lot um to know that we can be this vulnerable and honest and that there are people who are going to actually listen because if there's anything that this movie has has taught us it's that people just don't want to listen sometimes yeah i also want to acknowledge that for anyone listening who may have had similar experiences in your life that i see you and i'm sorry that that's something that you had to endure but that i'm proud of you for getting through it and It's not your fault. And it never was. Mm -hmm. And it never will be. Mm -hmm. But we love you and we appreciate you. I don't feel like doing plugs this week. I don't think we need to. You know where to. If you've stuck through this whole episode, then you know who we are and the things that we plug. Yeah. You know where to find us. Uh, The information will be in the show notes as well as some links to resources um, in case you or someone you know may be hurting and Mm. may need some help because this was a very heavy episode, but I think a very important one. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you so much for listening and um, we'll see you next time with something not quite as heavy. No, um, I don't think anything will be quite this heavy. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing, but it's what's happening. Just, you know, everything works in doses. We, we went really far down and now we've got to, to rise back up. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.
This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.